This is a CBC Podcast. Want a weekly roundup of the best CBC Radio programming? Subscribe to the CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Get a digest of the week's top stories. Read in-depth articles. Listen to interviews and documentaries. And get the lowdown on upcoming stories from CBC Radio 1 that you need to hear. To subscribe, go to cbc.ca slash radio and look for the subscribe button. The CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Be informed. Dance, anine, boujou, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Well, it's the most important season in the country, the NHL playoffs. Hockey is a celebrated sport with a long history on this side of the border. We play, we watch, we debate, and we love every moment on the ice. And hockey crosses cultural barriers, too. You'll find the game being played on res rinks, lakes and ponds all over Indigenous country. And more and more players are breaking through to professional levels. But it's not without its challenges, too. Today on Unreserved, in the words of Stompin' Tom Connors, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game. Everybody's singing along now. I got that song stuck in your head. You're welcome. It was a first in hockey history, and Indigenous fans loved every minute. Last month, Enoch Cree Nation hosted Hometown Hockey, its first ever visit to a reserve. The broadcast from the reserve also coincided with a monumental NHL broadcast in the Plains Cree language. The weekend was a celebration of Indigenous people and their deep ties to hockey. But many saw it as more than a celebration. It was also a step toward partnership. Our Kyle Musica made the trip out to Enoch to cheer along with fans. Waiting through all the kids outside the Enoch Recreation Centre, I met 8-year-old Gordy Ward. He's from Enoch Cree Nation. And I asked him what hometown hockey was all about. Uh, it's basically just a thing where people travel around the world and hockey stuff around Canada. And yeah, it's actually pretty fun. What's been your favorite part so far? Uh, the ball hockey and the shooting accuracy. Oh, nice. How'd you do in the shooting accuracy? Uh, I got uh, 45 points in 31 seconds. Holy smokes. How, how do you think I would do it? I'm not very good. Uh, zero, zero. Yeah, probably. So Gordy kind of roasted me there, but I kind of set myself up for it. I tracked down Enoch Cree Nation chief Billy Morin, who was so busy that weekend that he had an up-to-the-minute schedule. I asked him what he saw. I see reconciliation. Chief uh, Grand Chief Wilton Littlechild is, is a champion of reconciliation, but he also says now we're moving into reconciliation. So you have people from Whitewood Mess, you have people from the city of Edmonton, you have people from Spruce Grove, you have people from multiple organizations coming together, uh, First Nations and other communities, and that's what I see, people coming together in the spirit of moving forward uh, in reconciliation. Each NHL season, Hometown Hockey has 24 episodes. That's 24 Sundays where the crew goes to a specific community and celebrates hockey by hosting a series of fun events, alumni games, and share stories on their live broadcast during the intermissions of the Sunday night game. The event was lively. There was music, games for kids like the shooting accuracy Gordy mentioned that he would have roasted me at earlier, some of the best rink food money could buy. But for a community with such deep ties to hockey, 
hometown hockey means so much more. Shane Peacock looks at one of the many team photos hung up in the Enoch Recreation Center. He's in one, but is a bit fuzzy on the details. I can't remember exactly what our names are. I think we were the Cubs. So that was a fun year. We won a lot of tournaments. We had a really close-knit group there. Uh, same people I'm looking at are the same ones are I deal with on a daily basis, and it's great to look back at that memory. These photos overlook the rink, where teams from all over Treaty 6 got together to play. Peacock, who played professional hockey in Germany and is now a band counselor with the nation, was instrumental in bringing the event home. Hosting the event is pretty remarkable, considering the Enoch Cree Hockey Association is only in its fourth year. Jordan Cordepat is the president of the association, which he balances with coaching, taking care of his kids, and night business school. He's burning the candle at both ends, he says, but being able to provide opportunities for his and other kids makes it all worth it. It's really special for me in particular because I, you know, I grew up without a father. He, you know, like I said, in and out of jail and... You know, I had some pretty good role models around that, you know, kind of stepped in and helped here and there, some uncles. And uh, for me, just to have that opportunity with my kids is very special, coaching and spending the time with them. Those are things that, you know, as a child that I wanted and unfortunately it didn't happen. And life goes on and, you know, I was fine. But I think I take a little, it's a little extra special for me to be able to do that because I know what I missed out on and I just want to give them the best that I can possibly give for them to have a good life and to be happy. Chief Tony Alexis from the Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation was being stopped every five seconds by somebody new to talk to. The hockey community is small, the community in and around Enoch even smaller. He had just finished watching some young members of his nation play in the kids' tournament. He hopes an event like Hometown Hockey can spur other events in neighboring First Nations. We would love to host one of these. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a, uh, a skating rink. I mean, we're here to support. Alexis is here to support Enoch. Other First Nation communities are here to support uh, Enoch. Other uh, Indigenous communities are here to support Enoch. And even uh, everybody in general who loves hockey is here to support Enoch and what they've done. Now, in supporting Enoch, surrounding First Nations are promoting the sport, too. Not that it needed much promoting in the community anyway. But what did need more promotion, Chief Morin says, was the possibility hockey could bring. The world's bigger than the reserve. We're a four-by-five-mile box, and as close as we are to the city of Edmonton, it's still, there's still barriers there that exist in, in mentally and, it, and socially. So when people come in to our nation, and no matter where they're from, and we're using hockey as the catalyst... It shows them that there's a bigger world out there. There's a bigger world in terms of creating relationships with just friends on their other hockey teams. There's a Stanley Cup. There's NHL players. There's NHL alumni. They can be one of them one day. And uh, I I think it's just great that our, our youth are seeing the vision come to them for a brighter future off the reserve. With hometown hockey, Chief Morin hopes more Indigenous kids see that brighter future off the reserve. Jordan Cordepat did just that. But after his playing career was over... He moved back to the reserve. He wanted to help young people see the same opportunities he did through hockey. Was hockey sort of a, an, an escape for you? Uh, definitely. Uh, I guess a lot of my peers, my cousins, uh, a lot of my good friends, they end up going down the wrong path. Not all of them, but a chunk of them went down the wrong path. And I hate to say it, I was probably heading down there too. It was just one of those things that 
it was kind of a norm for myself and my family that, you know, sometimes people will go down the road of getting in trouble, some will bounce back. And for me, I was lucky that hockey was my outlet and my escape. And I chose to go down that path instead of uh, choosing some destructive path or a path, I guess, that would lead you to jail or worse. So I'm very fortunate I got to play and, and escape that type of lifestyle. Shane Peacock knows that escape route well, but he too moved back to the community. That brighter future off-reserve often seems to lead back home. And for Peacock, that home is the rink. Every time I come in this, I have a sense, into the building, I have a sense of pride. It is truly the heart of the community. Everybody in the nation's been to the rec center or the gym side for some kind of event. And, you know, that's what, that's, when we talk about hometown hockey, this is the place to be for us, and it's the heart of our community. That was Kyle Musica out in Enoch Cree Nation just west of Edmonton during their hometown hockey event. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169 and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild, talking all about the good old game of hockey on the show today. Hockey teams start somewhere, on a backyard rink, in a community centre or on a frozen lake. But how do you start a hockey team when there's no ice time, no equipment, and a group of kids who've never even played the game? We didn't play hockey. We just started when um, our first coach asked us if we wanted a girls' hockey team. We played out on the lake. Nothing. Just skates and a hockey stick. Um, My name is Tanisha Raven. I'm 13. I'm forward. Tanisha plays for Res Girls 64, an all-girls team in Yemiton, First Nation. Res Girls 64 started playing on a patch of ice cleared from the lake next to the reserve. It's a small fly-in First Nation in northern Ontario, about an hour from Thunder Bay by plane. As people started to hear about the team, they wanted to help. Donated equipment was shipped in, private donors, and a GoFundMe account raised $90,000 for a new ice surface. (laughs) I don't know, we were really happy when um, we were having a practice on the lake, and then a truck came down and told us there was hockey coming in a trailer. Last month, the team flew to Kingston to play in their third-ever tournament. When Allison Norman, the team's manager, saw the girls on the ice, she was thrilled. I feel like a mom. (laughs) I feel super proud. I get all teary, and I'm not a crier. And, I mean, last year when they scored their first goal was, was amazing. And then this year, to see them score three goals in the first game was was awesome because last year they only scored two goals all season so in one game to be able to score three goals is just it's just great and I yeah I'm just I'm just so proud of them and I I love watching them out there Koopman helped facilitate fundraising projects to get the Res Girls from Fort Hope to the Kids for Kids tournament. It is uh, just to see what they these girls love to do um, is be on the ice. They, 
they light up. They're so excited. It's just what they want to do. Um, and I love that they have been so welcomed by the hockey community in Kingston, by the Kingston Ice Wolves. This is where they need to be. The first game, they were all shy. They didn't even want to get leave the dressing room after they dressed up, right? And they said, there's people out there. And I'm like, that's what hockey is about, I said. I'm from Fort Hope. My name is Leo Adlukan. I've coached hockey for about 25 years now, about there. They work together. That's that's the whole part of what I wanted to teach them, right? Is you can overcome anything that you put your mind to and your heart, right? And I keep telling the girls that, you know, like, just put your mind and your heart in it. You will overcome and you will get better and better as a person. And that's why I try to teach them, right? It's working together and being better. Like I always tell them, you know, be good, do good. You're going to make people good. At the tournament, the girls lost every game they played, but they scored three goals in one game, the most they've ever scored in a single match. They even got to meet Toronto Maple Leafs forward Mitch Marner while they were there. Not too bad for the team's third tournament. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169 and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild, talking all about hockey on the show today. Now, what if I told you some people say hockey has Indigenous roots? I'm confident that our ancestors and the oral history they shared and their conviction that the Mi'kmaq invented hockey, I believe them. I believe them. And I have no reason not to. More on that in just a few minutes. Hockey isn't all about getting pucks into the net, making big saves, and staying out of the box. Racism is still a huge problem in hockey, from the major leagues right down to peewee teams. Last May, players on a First Nations hockey team were called savages at a tournament in Quebec City. Support poured in after their coach, Tommy Neposh, posted videos of the taunts online. A lot has happened since last year. Tommy Neposh is here to tell us more. Hello, Tommy. Hi, Rosanna. Yes. So take me back to that day. You're in Quebec City for a AAA tournament. Who was with you? And what were the ages of these players? They were like 12, 13, 14, around there. Mm, So all very young teenagers. Oh, yeah. These are all Indigenous kids that left their reserves to go play uh, elite hockey down south. When we first got in, I told my son uh, to go check the schedule, and he said, Dad, I feel popular. And I asked him why. Everyone was staring at me. That's the first day, first minute we were at the arena. At what point during the tournament did you start to notice a change in what was happening on the ice? I saw my boys walking through the dressing room. You can see the hall where the rooms are, and there's like four or five boys peeking out. 
And my son went to a French school when he was young, and he, he understood what they were saying, and he said, look at these guys. Look at how they dress. Look at how they look. Mm-hmm. So once we started playing, um, I noticed the ref was on to us all the time, like these little things uh, that our players did that were uncalled for, and he didn't call the other team. That was the first period where we dominated the game. So when your team started uh, winning, what was the response from the other team? After the end of the first game, they started naming the game star. And my one of my defense, his name is Julian Marshall, he caught something. And I've noticed right away, these kids were doing the war cry. Mm. You know, something like that. Mm-hmm. The refs were laughing. The coach was just laughing. And the parents started doing the tomahawk chop towards our players. The parents of that team. Mm-hmm. So Julian approached the ref and he says, do you see this? And the tournament says, zero tolerance. Now, at one of the later games at the tournament, you recorded some of what was happening on the ice. Let's hear a bit of that. Calls it again. A little ahead like that. Gang de Sauvage! Gang de Assis! Oh, we! So, Tommy, we can hear some commotion going on. What Can you tell us what's happening in this in this clip that we just heard? Wow, wow. it just brought back a lot of things. Well, I was sitting behind uh, my team's bench, you know, that's where I was sitting, and I was sitting with one of the mothers, and as I was watching the game and recording the game, I hear one of the fans screaming, Gang the Savage, and I filmed him, and it's a, a really uh, common reason slur in Quebec, Gang the Savage means like we're savages and crazy Indians, and I also noticed most of the parents, like all the fans, the parents did the tomahawk chop towards our players. And when I went out downstairs to the dressing room, I I saw a boy sitting in the corner crying. So one of your players, Julian Marshall, you mentioned him earlier, spoke to yeah. CBC about his experience at the tournament. Yeah. Uh, I just want to take a listen to what he yeah. said. At the end of the first game, uh, both teams lined it up and uh, uh, on the blue line, right? And they did, you know, like uh, like when you put your hand over your mouth and you're like, the whole team did that. This this was almost uh, every game. There were some sort of remarks. I actually went really calmly and politely to to one of the linesmen, and I was like, I'm sorry, are you seeing this? This is like, this is racist. This is wrong. And like that 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 linesman uh, said, what are you talking about? Go back, like. Go back and line up on the blue line, you know what I mean? Like, kind of just like saying, like, like if I was in the wrong for doing that. Tommy, what's it like for you to hear to hear that uh, from one of your players? Well, he was one of the guys that stood up in the room and spoke to the boys. He said, come on, guys, forget about it. We shouldn't, you know, we're here and we're, we almost made it through, so don't worry about it, you know. And Julian is a good kid. Oh. I can hear the frustration in your voice, Tommy, yeah. and, and <laughs> my heart breaks for, you know, such young people having to face that kind of oh, you know, yeah. that kind of words. So when the story did get out in the media, what kind of support or reaction did you get from people? Oh, we didn't expect to have that much support like that. 
Once I got that contact from Todd Woodcroft from the Winnipeg Jets, uh, assistant coach, mm-hmm. Todd Woodcroft, what? Are you serious? And he said, yeah. It was Todd Woodcroft speaking, you know, and I was like, with his coachable voice, you know, I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And once he got to me and he said, I'd like to do something for the boys, and I was like, wow, when would you be able to do it? And I just told the boys, would you guys come to the, to the, to the practice in Ottawa? And all the boys jumped in. Uh, each and every one of the players jumped in, and they said, we want to be part of it. I also yeah. understand that you received um, some support from an NHL player. What was that about? Yeah. Tell me about that? I was driving home from my reserve, and I was driving on the road, and I got an inbox from the messenger. And it was Bonnie O'Reilly, the mother of Ryan O'Reilly. And she invited us to the Ottawa Senators game to meet up with Ryan and throw some encouraging words towards our players and everything. How are the boys? After the incident, we kind of stuck together. It got the boys together. The, the bonds got stronger. Mm. They got closer and they played together. And I said, you guys are going to probably face this for the rest of your life if you want to go chase that NHL dream, you know, or a professional hockey dream. And I told the boys, don't worry, we'll get back at it next year. So everybody's all excited to start the season and they want to play. Thank you so much for your time today, Tommy. No problem. Thank you for listening and thank you for your, all your support. That's Tommy Nieposh, coach of the First Nation elites who faced racist taunts at a tournament in Quebec City last May. Hockey is thriving in many remote communities, including Rankin Inlet, Nunavut, the home of Jordan Tutu. Tutu recently retired from the NHL, having been the first Enoch to make it to the league. But his incredible journey from Rankin to the NHL wasn't without struggles with addiction, which almost ended his career. Well, I think, uh, you know, I picked up my first drink when I was 14 years old. Uh, Like I said, it was around the house um, quite often. And, uh, you know, obviously every kid wants to experiment. And, uh, you know, my days in juniors, it probably escalated a little bit more. And then moving on into the NHL, being 20 years old, 21, living on your own, basically no one looking after you. I think it uh, really escalated even more. And Mm -hmm trying to deal with uh, the passing of my brother and, and blocking everything out, you know, it just intensified and got worse and uh, came to a point where it was either my career or eventually be uh, six feet under. And I, you know, chose to uh, end one cycle to start a new cycle. You know, in sobriety, a lot of people think it gets easier. Uh, mm-hmm. Trust me, it's uh, it's a grind. Um, you know, the first couple of years for me, it was tough. I uh, didn't realize how many people I affected throughout my drinking days. And like you said, it's been uh, a little over eight years. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't have what I have now if I if I didn't change my life. You know, I have a beautiful wife, Jennifer. We have two healthy girls, Sienna and Avery, that are my Stanley Cups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just been a thrill and a joy every day to be around them and... Uh, you know, just to be a part of uh, 
their life on a daily basis. Uh, my my wife Jen has been through thick and thin with with me and by my side, and you know I count on her every day to uh, to lift me up and to to help guide me through some of the toughest days. You can read and hear more about Jordan Tutu's story on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved. There's a long history of debate about where hockey was born. Some say it started on Long Pond outside Windsor or Montreal, or even England. But could it be a Mi'kmaq invention? A new documentary makes the case that hockey as we know it was born out of a Mi'kmaq game. CBC Indigenous reporter Nick Maloney joins us from Halifax with more on this story. Hi, Nick. Welcome. Hi. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me, how did this question come up? Well, it all comes from Mi'kmaq law professor and uh, hockey mom, Cheryl Maloney, and her sister, April Maloney. I should mention now, uh, we're not, we're of no relation. They spell their names differently. They're Mi'kmaq. I'm Melissa Guau. Um, but Cheryl uh, and April have been researching the idea and producing this documentary since 2014, and they're from Sebaganagadig First Nation. Now, Cheryl told me that the original idea came from a paper submitted to her by one of her students on the history of Mi'kmaq hockey sticks, and, and the Mi'kmaq have... Uh, long been credited with the design and original manufacturing of hockey sticks in the game's early days. And Cheryl said that that's, uh, that's where they really started. They were curious about how that came to be. And she said, too, that as they started their research, a lot of her inspiration came from her 14-year-old hmm. son, Chase Nicholas. And uh, he's been playing hockey since he was three years old. I remember having a conversation with Chase one day, driving home and saying, Chase, you can play this game. You know, because they're down on themselves. They don't think they're ever good enough. So you can play this game. You know, this is our game. This is a Mi'kmaq game. The Mi'kmaq invented hockey. So he always knew that, you know, there was claims of Mi'kmaq invented hockey. But you don't realize until you really, until we started looking into it, uh, how much information and evidence is out there. And that was Cheryl Maloney. So what sort of evidence is out there? Well, in 2016, uh, Chase put together a timeline of the Mi'kmaq references throughout the recorded history of the game's developments in Nova Scotia. And it started with a quote from Nova Scotian author Thomas Rudall, who referenced a passage from a 1749 English military diary. And the passage mentions garrison officers who found what they called Indians playing a primitive form of the Irish field game hurling on the ice at Tufts Cove in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Mm. Now, unfortunately, Rodal didn't record who wrote the diary or when specifically they wrote it, but it looks like one of the earliest documented instances of the Mi'kmaq playing a game with sticks on ice. And that missing document is kind of a recurring theme in this Mi'kmaq origin theory. The Maloney's don't have much in terms of written evidence to support the idea, and that's you know likely because Indigenous history simply weren't documented in the ways that European history has been. But there's historical evidence from across Europe and North America showing versions of stick and ball games on ice developing all throughout the late 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, hundreds of years across the globe. But Cheryl Maloney says that she's unfazed by the other claims to hockey, uh, such as Montreal and England. Uh, After all, the strongest evidence, she says, still points to Windsor, Halifax, and Dartmouth, otherwise known as the unceded ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq. 
So there's nobody in the world, even though with similar games played everywhere else, there's nowhere in the world that is going to argue that hockey didn't come from the Mi'kmaq territory. From all of our research, it's a continuous connection to the Mi'kmaq people and in the area, which is the Sabaganagadic district. It's not by um, non-native historians or academics that are going to say the Mi'kmaq invented hockey, because that's not where the evidence is. The evidence is with the Mi'kmaq people. The evidence is within our language, within our legends, within our stories. I'm confident that our ancestors and the oral history they shared and their conviction that the Mi'kmaq invented hockey and that we had this game long before the Pale Faces arrived, I believe them. I believe them. And I have no reason not to. Nick, Cheryl mentioned oral history there. What sort of stories are shared in Mi'kmaq communities about hockey? Well, that's another interesting angle to the Maloney's research. In 1943, a Mi'kmaq photographer from Sabaganagadik named Old Joe Cope wrote a letter to the editor of a Halifax newspaper in response to the development of other hockey origin theories. And in the letter he wrote, I'm quoting here, Long before the pale faces strayed to this country, the Mi'kmaqs were playing two ball games, a field game and an ice game, and, and an ice game, end quote. But while the letter's been cited by numerous historians, it appears that the original copy has been, unfortunately, lost to time. I tried to uh, find the published copy in the Halifax Herald uh, archives, but there was uh, no luck without an exact date. It's kind of tough to find, and no one seems to have that date. So this is where it gets good. While the Maloney's were researching Old Joe's letter, they found an old hockey stick that he'd carved himself, and they found out that they were actually a direct ancestor of his. It, uh, old Joe Cope was Cheryl's great-great-grandfather. It was interesting to see that Joe, uh, Joe Cope actually not just wrote into the paper, but he would argue with anybody till he was blue in the face that would have a discussion with him that the Mi'kmaq invented hockey. It just made us feel connected to the Mi'kmaq and our ancestors, more than the game or hockey, but connected to our ancestors, our territory, and the need to continuously make sure that it's documented. So all of this sounds like a compelling tale, but what do the hockey historians say? Well, uh, I spoke to a fellow named David Carter about that. He's a communications designer for the Nova Scotia Museum, but he's been investigating hockey origin theories uh, for a long time, and Mi'kmaq hockey sticks specifically, uh, almost for a decade. Uh, he actually calls himself Hockey Holmes, heritage detective. <laughs> And I met him at the Halifax Forum, and I asked him straight up, do you think there's a chance that Mi'kmaq invented hockey? Again, I find invention a very difficult term because it, 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 it requires a certain amount of proof, I think, uh, to, to claim an invention. You know, today we, we call that copyright. Back then, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, there's no means of, 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 uh, of doing that. I, I think their game, whatever it was, influenced our game. Whether it was exactly like our game, I suspect not. It couldn't be like our game. They did not have steel skates. If they skated, they skated on bone skates. If they didn't skate, was it ice hockey? People have different opinions about that. And Carter's a historian's historian. He relies heavily on facts and data from documented history. And we know that there isn't much related to the Mi'kmaq theory. 
But he said that the evidence supports an origin story in Nova Scotia and that it did take hundreds of years for the game to develop into ice hockey as we know today. And he and I spoke for nearly an hour about the distinction between similar European sports like hurling and ice golf. And at the end, we both had as many questions as we did answers. But Carter's focused a lot of his work on the history of Mi'kmaq hockey sticks, and he said that that's where the most convincing evidence is that the Mi'kmaq could have played a bigger role in hockey's uh, origins than we all think. There's substance there. Uh, uh, the oral tradition of the Mi'kmaq and anything that can be brought to bear uh, from a modern context is really important and invaluable. And I, I have no idea that... Uh, Prior to Hurley on the ice, the Mi'kmaq game, they were using crooked sticks. It doesn't take much imagination to move from crooked sticks to the modern hockey stick. There's a connection right there. So I, 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 I don't think in a Nova Scotia context you can discount anything. Uh, we just seem to be an epicenter uh, for evolution. Hmm. So a case... For some connection, though, he's not ready to call it a Mi'kmaq invention. But I take it that hasn't deterred Cheryl and her family. (laughs) You're right. It hasn't deterred them at all. I think it's our duty and obligation for my generation and my son's generation to make sure that that continuity is there. There's going to be young Mi'kmaq people doing more research. They're going to be looking to our elders. They're going to look to our language. They're going to go through the National Archives. Right now, we're looking for a book uh, written in Mi'kmaq, The Hockey Rules. We may not be able to find that for this film, but I'm, I'm hoping that we're playing our role to make sure that this history isn't forgotten and that they continue the story. I think hockey is such a, a beautiful sport that is a gift of the Mi'kmaq to the rest of the world. There's no taking that game or keeping it for ourselves, but I'd love to give pride to our kids and other Aboriginal children in this country to know when they step on that ice that that came from the Mi'kmaq people. Nick, whether it's true or not, what does more awareness around the Mi'kmaq's role in hockey do for the young people? Well, uh, you know, when the cameras and the the mics were off, Cheryl and I talked about how important developing a sense of ownership is when it comes to Mi'kmaq culture and way of life. Canada's history of colonization took a lot away from the Mi'kmaq First Nations peoples in general. Um, So developing that sense of ownership, deeper connection to hockey and Mi'kmaq kids, especially, you know, in any sport that encourages healthy lifestyles Mm. and teamwork, that is, forgive the pun, a winning goal. (laughs) We're all about the puns, Nick. Great. (laughs) Thanks so much for that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. CBC Indigenous reporter Nick Maloney from Halifax. You can see more on this story online. Go to our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved. As we've heard all throughout the show, for some Indigenous people, hockey has been one way of creating a life off reserve. In doing that, some have found they're pretty good at hockey, good enough to play professionally. But underneath the surface of success are the pulls to home. Two University of Maine players made their professional debuts this year. Brady Keeper from the Pimichikamak First Nation made his NHL debut on March 28th with the Florida Panthers. Before that, though, he almost made a choice that could have jeopardized his chances at playing in the NHL. At the University of Maine the next year, almost went home a couple times there. I think I booked my flight about 
four or five times in like, I don't know, like a week, five days or something like that, canceling them and then <laughs> doing all that stuff. And then, but yeah, the coaches were, coaches there at Maine were really helpful to me. And I just got a little support from them uh, in Maine there. I was just kind of homesick, I guess, but people just kept reminding me just to uh, keep going and all that stuff to, uh, I guess they said it would, it would pass by. And when hockey came around and all that stuff, it was uh, made easier for me to adjust and, Obviously, getting closer to the guys and coaching stuff and getting comfortable around there, it was pretty easy after that. Most people don't know, I guess, coming from a First Nation community, I guess a lot of Aboriginal people are like that, and they're just afraid to leave home and get out of their comfort zone. So, but that's what I did, and it's just, I'm here today, and that's what I'm just really thankful for. Once Brooke Stacy, who is Mohawk from Ganawage, finished off her university career in Maine, the pros came knocking. She had her first taste of pro hockey this year, playing in a few games in Sweden for Lingjoping HC. She says she's unlikely to play overseas next year because of culture and language barriers, and she also wants to be closer to home. Yeah, um, I think I'm mostly connected there because I'm really close with my family. So, like, I think my ties to the community is mostly my family, and I also have a lot of supporters from the reserve that follow have followed my journey through Team Canada and the University of Maine and Sweden. So I'm happy that I have so many supporters from the reserve. So I guess that's also a tie to them. That pull home is still felt by Brady Keeper, even though he's made it to the big leagues. During his struggles in Maine, many people reached out to him to tell him things do get easier. All the people phoning me, there's like Jordan, like I said, Jordan Tutu, um, Aaron Asham, um, Cody McCormick, there was a bunch of people, Ted Nolan, um, they, they all phoned me there at one, that one day when I actually almost left. Obviously, I had uh, I had still had times that I wanted to leave because I was still homesick even though my girlfriend was here. And I think just getting reminded by my, my dad and all that stuff uh, just to keep going. And I guess people, other coaches saying how, how good I was and all that stuff. But I guess it was the right choice I made there and... That was the best choice for me, and uh, that would have been uh, probably the worst decision of my life if I left. The people he mentioned, Jordan Tutu, Aaron Asham, Cody McCormick, Ted Nolan, are all Indigenous players and coaches. The Indigenous community within professional hockey is small and tight-knit. Keeper says when they spoke to him, it let him know he wasn't the only person who's felt like giving it all up and heading back home. But in that tight-knit community, there aren't many women. With success stories like Brooke Stacy's, she hopes she can inspire the next generation of girls so they too can use sport to get an education. I just want little kids to go after whatever they want to do, like if it's hockey or any other sport or just a career, just knowing that the reserve will be there and the people will be there to support you. And like just with me, I had such a huge fan base just from my reservation. And like, it's just an honor to feel the support from them. I think it just goes to show that it's not just men that can make it to the higher leagues. Like obviously for women, the highest is representing your country. And so I think just for little girls, it's like you can make a career out of it. You can make money if that's what you want. So I think it's pretty cool. That's Brooke Stacy, who just finished up her season with Lingjoping HC in Sweden. And Brady Keeper, who just wrapped up his season with the Florida Panthers in the NHL.
That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. We'll be back in this radio space next week for more community culture and conversation. This episode was produced by Kyle Muzika, Stephanie Cram, Zoe Tennant, and Anna Lazowski. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at unreserved at cbc.ca or find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Thank you for listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. Agassay. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.